The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. Oh, we got ourselves a show. This is going to be quite a little show for you because we got not one, not two, but three lawyers on the program this week. And I know. When you hear it phrased that way, it sounds like a really good reason to run as fast as you can away from anything that you're listening to this or watching this on. But these are three lawyers you want to hear from for a couple reasons. One, you're going to hear from three lawyers, and I guarantee you not one of us is going to send you a bill. So you got that going for you. Two, these are three of the nicest lawyers you're ever going to meet. I mean... You got me, first of all, this week. I'm a lawyer, and I'm a friggin' sweetheart. I mean, you're not going to find anybody who tells you different. Our guest this week, a terrific entertainment lawyer, Joshua Lasting, friend of the show, joining us. And he's a lawyer who's also really awesome. And you're going to want to hear from him. Super knowledgeable, award-winning, has worked with all the top entertainment companies, has been on, been on some huge deals in the entertainment industry. And I got a bunch of questions for him about the WGA strike and what's going on with SAG-AFTRA and whether they're going to join the strike and what AI means for the entertainment industry and for all this labor dispute. A lot of really important issues in entertainment law that we got to talk to Joshua Lasting about, and he's coming up a little bit later in the show. And perhaps best of all, our third lawyer that's joining us is our co-host this week, America's sweetheart, Zach Sloan is here. Hi, Zach. Ryan, it's funny you talk about me being a nice lawyer. Just the other day, I'm at the vet getting my dog taken care of, and who did I see but a former uh, individual I used to litigate against, and we did not speak to each other. So I guarantee you some people do not like me. I find that hard to believe. I don't, I'll, I'll put it this way. I don't want to know somebody who doesn't think highly of Zach Sloan. I feel like if I was opposite Zach Sloan in some contentious litigation, even if I lost real bad, I'd still feel like, man, I'm glad I got to hang out with that guy. I I appreciate that. That is not the experience of many lawyers I've worked with. But let's not forget, the area of law I litigated in was more contentious than the usual type. So, you know, can't take that into consideration. That being said, I am trying to be nicer. Hmm? I mean, yes, you're you're the law you've worked in tends to bring out the worst in people. And yet, yeah, you're you're still just a a really awesome guy to be around. Here is perhaps my best piece of evidence of how fundamentally decent of a human being you are. Certainly by lawyer standards, which are admittedly very low standards, but just by general human being standards as well. Oh no. Your Denver Nuggets out in Colorado absolutely mollywopped my Miami Heat in the NBA Finals. And did I get one gloating text from Zach Sloan? Did he laugh in the face of my misfortune? 
absolutely not. Was completely nice. And let's be clear. If the situation were reversed, <laughs> Zach Sloan would not have heard the end of it from me. Just just Jimmy Butler gif after Jimmy Butler gif invading his phone. He would have had to change his number. But when the things are turned around, does Zach harass me, make fun of me? No. Such a sweetheart. I much appreciate you for that, Zach. You are so sympathetic to my pain over here in Miami. Well, it's it's hard for me. Like, uh, go Nuggets. Love the Nuggets. But, like, also as a Denver Broncos fan, like, I really can't talk crap to anybody about sports. <laughs> so, I just, like, in the back of my head, I just know that all, all anybody has to say is, how's Russell w- Wilson working out? And then I'm done. I have nothing else to go with. <laughs> no matter how many 30, 20, 10 triple doubles... Uh, you know, uh, joke, joke it gives you yeah. the Joker. Uh, yeah, you still have to deal with Broncos Nation. Let's ride. Yeah, <laughs> Russell Wilson. That, it's it's over. It's it's you know it's, it's like I just keep my trap shut. I enjoy the success and just know that there's the burden of that horrible trade on Denver's back, and it just is what it is. I do want to talk to you, Zach, this week about the WGA strike and what's going on with SAG-AFTRA and. What whether we might see something similar in the music industry, because I think that is something that's important for indie creators to hear. But since we're talking about Denver, I wanted to start things off with our AI overlord tip of the week, which is Denver related this week. Now, Zach, in honor of the conquest of your Denver Nuggets in the NBA Finals, just absolutely demolishing my dear Miami Heat, I tasked ChatGPT to write a piece of advice for us this week for indie creators about effective networking. But I also asked it to put that advice in the narrative of a essay that talks about how great of a city Denver, Colorado is to visit. So, uh, uh, you know, important advice for indie creators and also hyping up the uh, city of Denver as a celebration of their basketball conquest. So that's that's the uh, AI Overlord tip this week. This is terrifying. <laughs> Oh no no! This is completely sincere. I'm. I swear, this isn't like a you know me gonna smack around Denver. First of all, how can you say anything negative about Denver if you wanted to? That have place you seen is our delightful. crime statistics lately? I mean, Miami. Hello. Well, that's true. When you live in Miami, you might not notice Denver, but the people of Denver are noticing Denver. Um, Very good. All right. Well, that won't come up in this love letter to Denver. That also happens to be. A uh, a great a great uh, essay about advice for indie creators about effective networking. So, without further ado, oh, no. as an indie creator, effective networking is one of your most potent tools for growth and success. Remember, it's not just about who you know, but who knows you. The relationships you build and the connections you make can open doors and create opportunities you've only dreamed of. And what better way to make those connections than in a city known for its creativity and innovation? Denver, Colorado. Firstly, be genuine in your interactions. People appreciate authenticity, whether you're in the Rhino Art District of Denver. Is that a real thing? (laughs) Known for its innovative street art and vibrant creative scene or at a networking event in your local town. 
Genuine interest and enthusiasm often spark reciprocated interest and meaningful conversations. And don't underestimate the power of local events. Denver is a city that thrives on community gatherings and local events, such as the Denver Arts Festival, which draws hundreds of local and national artists each year. Events like these are perfect opportunities to meet like-minded individuals, collaborate on ideas, and expand your network. Attend local events, engage with participants, and never miss an opportunity to introduce yourself and your work. Active listening is a crucial networking skill. When engaging with others, whether it's at the famous Red Rocks Amphitheater just outside Denver, I knew Red Rocks was going to get in there somehow, or any casual meetup. (laughs) Remember, ChatGPT ran out of nice things to talk about in Denver and had to start leaving Denver. Events like these are perfect opportunities to meet like-minded individuals, collaborate on ideas, and expand your network. So you should attend local events, engage with participants, and never miss an opportunity to introduce yourself and your work. Active listening is a crucial networking skill. When engaging with others, whether it's at the famous... Wait, did I... Oh, no, sorry. I said that paragraph already. Just as Denver's stunning skyline is made up of diverse architectural styles, from the neoclassical Colorado State Capitol to the ultra-modern Denver Art Museum, remember that a diverse network is a strong network. Connect with people outside of your immediate field or specialty. A diverse network brings in different perspectives, ideas, and opportunities, and can help you think outside the box and innovate. Lastly, always follow up. The connections you make are the start of a relationship, and like any relationship, it requires nurturing. If you've exchanged contact information after a great conversation at Denver's Union Station, we're doing train stations now? Okay, it is cool. (laughs) Make sure to follow up. A quick email or message can go a long way to show your interest and commitment in maintaining the relationship. Remember, networking is not a one-time event, but a continued process. So get out there, engage, listen, diversify, and always follow up. After all, the world, whether it's the creative scene in Denver or beyond, is your networking oyster. Happy connecting, indie creators. Zach, I this wasn't even meant to slander Denver, but, but it just when, happened. When ChatGPT like runs out of nice things to say about Denver and starts hyping up Red Rocks and a train station, that's okay. kind of rough. Okay, first of all, I've got a few comments. One, the Rhino Art District is amazing. And shameless plug time, if you have something, you need something to do Friday night, my band, Dear Marsha, hosting women, the Colorado's second annual Women Who Rock the Rockies event in the Rhino Art District on Friday at number 38. Come see our show. That's a real place. Um, and the Rhino Art District is cool. Two, Denver gets... I love Denver. I love living in Colorado, but I grew up in New Mexico. Denver gets a lot of um, positive hype because the mountains are so beautiful. We're not in the mountains. We're not. We're close. We're not in them, and so that's why you got to start going to Red Rocks because Denver is cool, but it's not like Miami cool. It's just not. See, I know Red Rocks is cool, and I think generally it is well respected as a music venue, right? Like there are a lot of yeah. musicians in the U.S. who dream of playing Red Rock someday. However, I do think its coolness is slightly diminished because when I think like, and and this is just like me doing, you you know, it just being so YouTube oriented and everything. When I close my eyes and think of Red Rocks, the first artist that comes to mind is John Tesh doing the NBA on NBC theme 
at Red Rocks. And I know that's not fair because Red Rocks has had some of the like coolest, most engaging music acts in the world. But I'm, I know I'm not alone in thinking like when, when you say word association with Red Rocks, Dude. a lot of people are going John Tesh. Why did I forgot about that? And then you brought that back into my psyche. Ugh. It's a great YouTube video. For those of you are watching this, listening to this, pause this for a second. Go watch the YouTube video of John Tesh at Red Rocks, where he plays his little answering machine of him humming the uh, round ball rock NBA on NBC theme to himself to remind him later to write the song. And and yeah, it's just, it's John Tesh. It just that's delightful. That is, it is cool. But I had forgotten about it. <laughs> Overall, though, in all seriousness, I think that tip's actually great. And I can point to myself as an example about networking and being a positive thing. That's how I got on this show. Yeah, <laughs> is I networked with you for a long time via Twitter and just being a fan of the show and engaging with guests and making sure I followed up with them. And even now randomly following up with some of the people I met through the show, um, just because I really wound up enjoying them. Um, networking is great. Following up is really important. And what I loved at the beginning when it said networking is not just about who, you know, it's about who knows you because when people know you, they know you're a good person. They know you're a hard worker. They know you have a skill set, and then they need that. You're top of the mind. So I, as much as I, I love um, chat, chat GPT um, subtly taking digs at my city, um, I think overall <laughs> they got it right. I like the idea of, I like the closing advice there that the AI overlord gave us about networking being a continuous process, right? Like, yeah. net, you know, it's not a one-time event. Networking is not, I'm going to go to one networking mixer get a couple business cards and then it's over, right? It's, it's a garden that you are always cultivating. And, you know, even with this podcast, I like to invite guests back such as Joshua lasting multiple times, not just because they give great advice each time, but I want to cultivate that, you know, networking. I want to know what this person's up to. I will have people that I've networked with like, you know, these just grandmaster networkers who just out of the blue, if it's been a few months, they'll reach out and email me and just say, hey, how, thing, how are things going? I would love to get on a Zoom with you. Not because I have anything particular to discuss and not because, you know, there's anything going on, but I just want to, you know, keep tabs. And I'll almost always take those conversations. Like at first, you know, when I would get those emails, I'd be like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't have time for this. But now I, I get so flattered by them and I realize what's happening there is that person's trying to continue that relationship with me. Yep. And every time I have one of those follow-up, just shooting the breeze conversations where somebody, an old contact messages me out of nowhere, it almost always leads to something mm -hmm. good for both of us. Oh, I love the people that are, I mean, I, I'm, I like to think I'm a good networker. I'm not as good as those people are. And I'm glad those people exist. Well, and I think indie musicians can also take, a, don't think of networking just with, producers, songwriters, entertainment attorneys. Think of your fans, right? Like there are fans since I joined the band Dear Marsha and even back when I was running the Zach Sloan band, like we became friends. We knew each other because we continued those interactions, right? They came to multiple shows because I was just nice to them after a gig and got their name. And then don't be afraid to say, hey, will you remind me your name? Most people don't care and it's not, it's not an embarrassing thing. But don't think of this just as a business thing. Think of this also with your fan base. I like that. And oftentimes, 
especially when you're when you're an indie creator starting out, your fans, especially those early diehards, can be your bridge to the next great opportunity because you don't know who that fan knows and you don't know what resources that fan has. That's a, that's a great piece of advice. I think fans are an oft overlooked networking contact, especially for a lot of early career independent creators. That's awesome, awesome. Wow, who'd have thought that that... Uh, that uh, subtext dig by ChatGPT would turn out to be such a great conversation about networking. Later on in the show, Zach, I want to talk with uh, Josh Lasting about just what's going on with all these strikes, right? You have w- yeah. WGA is currently on strike. <laughs> this is eventually this is going to start affecting our TV shows and we're not going to, you know, we're, you know, whatever the next season of your favorite show is might get delayed by a few months. You know, it's going to you're going to start to feel it at the cinema and it might get even more pronounced because I think if SAG after doesn't hammer out a deal by the end of this month, they're going to go on strike. And now you have these two very important unions of creative professionals who have uh, who are engaged in a work stoppage. That's going to have a huge impact on Hollywood. And what I've seen in response to that is a, a pretty interesting kind of thought experiment by a lot of writers and creative professionals out there, which is we're seeing a lot of striking on the film and television side, right? You have the actors looking to go on strike. You have the writers already on strike. Could we see something similar in the music industry, right? Uh, music, uh, recording artists and songwriters, these are certainly populations that we would find to be quite burdened by record labels and publishing companies. This whole podcast was started on that notion, right? That, hey, these labels are, are, and these publishing companies sure do treat musicians badly. Could collective bargaining, could could a strike be a way for these uh, creative professionals to get better deals? And recently in Rolling Stone, Ethan Millman had a, wrote an, about a movement among songwriters to consider striking as a way to get better pay. Could songwriters strike the same way that TV and film writers are striking. And we're going to talk a little bit about this, but the short answer is there are some significant legal impediments that would prevent songwriters from striking the same way that film and TV writers can strike. And, you know, you as a labor lawyer, Zach, know a lot about this. But before we talk about the law, I want to sort of go back to the article here and underscore why there is a need for this, because they interviewed some songwriters who talked about how tough it is out there to be a songwriter and how just uncertain and how little of a foundation you have. This is uh, some pretty wild quotes here, right? This is from a, a songwriter named Cadence Krisiuk, who wrote in the article, you know, to sort of underscore like what her daily life is like as a songwriter. She said, quote, somebody reaches out and says, hey, we've got a great opportunity for you. It's not paid. There's no budget. But if you break this artist, you're going to be good. So you go to this session for free. You have to pay for your parking, for your food. You leave the session $50 broker than before, and you hope the artist likes the song enough to put it out, which could take six months to a year, two years, three years. If it gets released, you don't see statements on that song for a good nine to 12 months. And unless it's number one on Billboard, that check won't even cover your rent. And that's the peak of the song. As it gets older, slowly the money goes down since it's not streaming as much. And you're like, damn, I can't even afford to get lunch. So that's the lifespan of a songwriter. You could see how that is a, that's a tough life. You don't know where your next check's coming from. You're putting up a lot of upfront time and financial investment 
to uh, every creative project and you don't know, you have no way of knowing if it's going to bear fruit. You don't know if the, if the big time artist is going to pick up your song. If they do, you don't know if that song is going to be a hit and you don't know how long it's going to be a hit. And so if there was ever an industry that could use some of these labor reforms that the WGA is fighting for on the film and television side, it is songwriters. The, the article talks about a bunch of reforms that songwriters would like to see Zach, like uh, for example, songwriters getting paid a session fee, uh, for their work when they, you know, before a song is released, getting their food and travel expenses covered, uh, even getting a percentage of ownership on the master recording when a master is created. Right now, generally, songwriters don't get those things. And so could could it be something that they could strike for in the same way the WGA is currently striking to try to get better reforms on the film and television side? And the short answer is no. So in 1984, the National Labor Relations Board held that for labor law purposes, songwriters are not employees. They are independent contractors. And as a result, they're not allowed to avail themselves of the sort of protections that labor law provides to unions because if a bunch of songwriters got together and told a publishing company, hey, we're going on strike unless you give us all a better deal, that sounds like, you know, that's antitrust. That's a violation of, you know, it's monopoly law. And so songwriters don't have the same ability to collectively bargain as writers on the film and TV side. And we're now wondering as an industry, should that change? Should there be some right for whether it's songwriters or maybe even independent recording artists to be able to collectively bargain against a publishing company or against Spotify or Apple music and try to get a better deal, try to get better rates. There's been some legislation that's been proposed. We had Ted Deutsch, uh, Congressman Ted Deutsch, on the show about a year or two ago, who talked about creating the perfect, uh, the Protect Working Musicians Act, which would have created a collective bargaining right for recording artists against Spotify and streaming services to try to get better deals. But not much came of that. The bill didn't get a lot of co-sponsors. But I'd like to see this conversation happen again. And I think in this environment right now of the WGA and SAG-AFTRA looking to go on strike, maybe we should start having this conversation about legislation to give songwriters similar rights and to give indie creators similar rights in the music industry. I mean, I tend to agree. I, I, I've, the idea of getting a piece of the master is something that intrigues me. That is interesting. I'll admit, I, I didn't think, that wasn't something I thought of until I saw the article. No, and, but the, uh, the thing is, is while that sounds nice initially that does not alleviate the problem that you don't know when the check is coming you don't know if they're going to release it uh having a piece of a master is no good if they don't record it um yeah but that is an interesting thing right i bet record labels would freak out <laughs> <laughs> that's where my mind goes um but i i on balance i do agree i think getting around some of those nlrb restrictions is going to be um difficult but that's why we have our guest um today who's can help explain this a little bit better than than maybe i can i think it's an interesting idea i fully support it i think currently though it might be a long shot it's gonna certain like the devil's gonna be in the details right, right. you you want to create legislation that is going to address some of these ills that songwriters are experiencing, like what Candace Krisiuk has talked about in that quote I brought up, without necessarily completely destroying uh, the music industry and the creative process and everything like that. But, I, you know, 
and so we got we got to get it right. But you know, the conversation needs to start. And while I can't sit here, and while you can't sit here, and while Joshua Lasting probably can't sit here and tell you what the perfect solution is, we need to start talking about what that solution could be. Here's the thing that makes it really tricky for songwriters. All right, if we're talking about uh, how they don't often get compensated well enough for the work that they do. Let's look at just streaming. All right, let's let's strip out everything else. Let's just talk about Spotify. Not only do not only does uh can songwriters not collectively bargain to get better royalties from Spotify because of the way songwriter royalties are set up, songwriters are actually getting uh taxed almost by uh, on their royalties. So, and they're they're getting less than they might would have gotten had there just been a normal market uh, transaction. So, there's two ways that songwriters get uh, compensated by Spotify on the songwriting side. You have mechanical royalties, which are largely set up by uh, federal statute. Right, the songwriters can't negotiate higher than that. the 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 st- The law says how much they get paid, and it ain't very much. And you have performance royalties, which are set by ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. And the law has a floor or has a ceiling on what ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC can charge in terms of royalties under some consent decrees. So right now, the government is sort of deflating the amount of money that songwriters could make from streaming services, which, you know, even so, even if the so it's like doubly different. So not only can they not strike to get a better deal. But the government's actively helping them get a worse deal because yeah. of the, uh, the 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 ceilings that they're placing on the two kinds of royalties that they get, and you know, and we don't just see it in in music side either. Like, wouldn't it be interesting if all of these Twitch streamers who we talk about on the show not getting a great right. deal by Twitch, what if they could collectively organize and go to Twitch and say, if you want to have all of us on your streaming service? You need to give us a better deal. You need to give us a higher percentage of the payouts. You need to, uh, you know, allow us more control over our channels, things like that. That's the kind of stuff that unionization can give you, except the law would likely not let streamers unionize against Twitch. That is, man, every time I feel optimistic, Ryan. Oh, wait, I'm usually the one who brings it down. Um, (laughs) No, you know... I mean, and this is, are we going to go three months in a row of me complaining about capitalism? But this is what happens, (laughs) right? Like, this is the situation that comes up because then the automatic response is, well, if you don't like Twitch, you should do it somewhere else. And then it's like, well, but Twitch is the place. It is the market, right? It's like, if you don't like how much you're getting paid for YouTube videos, well, where else are you going to post them? Um it's an interesting thing. I would love to see some action. I would love to have that conversation start. I would love to hear some ideas um, because it depresses me to no end. Can I give a little extra bonus tip of the week for indie artists? Always. Collect your performance royalties, people. What Ryan is talking about is a big deal. <laughs> when you play a show for the love of all that's holy, submit your set list to ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, whoever, um, and you get money for that. Like people used to go, Zach, how come when you play acoustic shows, you only play your own material? Because I get paid for that. <laughs> That's why I do it. <laughs> like, come on, people don't submit their own performance royalty statements. Like, you got to do it. It's 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 better money than you think. I guarantee you, it's more money than you'll make off Spotify. Well, let's get more foundational than that, Zach. I bet there's a lot of 
songwriters out there who are saying, what is ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC? Because they don't even have their PRO set up. Oh, and it's so easy. Yeah. Like, just, just, here, I, I'm on ASCAP, whatever. Go to BMI, it's free. Their website walks you through how to do it. It's very easy. You set it up. You get your number so that whenever you're doing a split sheet, you put your song, your ASCAP BMI, what is it, IPI number or something like that. You put that on there so everybody can track it, and then boom, it's seamless. It's they do a really good job, and you're gonna be like, I don't want them taking a piece of my money. I get it, fine. But if they don't do that, you don't get any of your money. So do these things. Submit your set lists. And also, if you cover my songs, please submit if you played my songs. I can <laughs> Definitely that too, you know? submit your set list if you're covering a Zach Sloan yeah. song. I mean, you know, Elton John may be breaking records for best or highest grossing tour ever, but I'm not. So if you're covering me, please, and then I'll send you five bucks. <laughs> That's really flattering. <laughs> I like that. All right. That's a happier note to end it on than, uh, than uh, you know, depressing Capitalism. labor law and why it's uh, keeping songwriters down. We got some more good news coming up after the break here because we're going to be talking with Joshua Lasting, a terrific entertainment lawyer, one of our friends of the show. Don't go anywhere. We got that coming up right after this here on Break the Business. Ryan Carella here. I hope you're enjoying the show and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program, and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm RKPA does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Carella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the program, you lovely humans. Ryan Carella here with Zach Sloan on SiriusXM 145 and all major podcast and live streaming platforms. There's so many freaking places that you can find this program, and we are so happy that you did. Thank you for checking us out, and thank you in advance for telling a friend and helping us grow this community. Let's go ahead and bring out our guest this week, Zach. He is a top deal-making lawyer in the entertainment industry and someone that we just really love talking to around here. He is the managing partner at Lasting Entertainment Law PC. He is also a professor at the Los Angeles Film School teaching entertainment business law and media ethics. You can find out more about our guest's work by visiting www.lastingentertainmentlaw.com. We are happy to welcome Joshua Lasting on to Break the Business. Hi, Joshua. 
He's definitely muted. I can see him waving his hand. I don't know. Uh, hey, so, sorry there it is. That, Technical difficulties. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Zach. My apologies. <laughs> Not a problem. It is great to see you again. I see behind you. I, when I saw it when you got up earlier, the really cool chair you have behind you. Is that a gamer chair? Is Joshua Lasting a gamer? comment. So, so I have two gamer chairs. Uh, let me preface this. I'm not a gamer, but I love playing Pokemon. I have every single Pokemon game. I still play them to this day. I have the most recent one. So in that sense, I'm a gamer, if you want to call it that. But I have two of these gamer racer-style chairs, and they are the most comfortable chairs for, for just generally working in um, that I've ever sat in. So uh, not a gamer by profession or trade, but I have two of these chairs. <laughs> Pokemon so gamers are right. absolutely gamers. Make no mistake. Yeah, that's awesome. We are gamer Josh, inclusive around here. Yeah. Okay. And he, you're right about gamer chairs being. I'm amazed that when you go to high profile law firms, that they don't just have the most comfortable chairs possible. Because if you're expecting somebody to bill, you know, thousands of hours a year, give them a great chair. And I, I, and I agree oh, with you. Oh, just you guys wait. Zach, Ryan, when I build my office here in L.A., the, a new one, I'll invite you in. And I'm going to get one of those, like, spaceship sit-back chairs where they bring the screens right to you. Like, because, yeah, we're just – we're in our chair. I'm in this chair 14 hours a day, so yeah. got to be comfortable. I love that. Yes, I would. I would very much like to tour your office and get, like, the whole – I just love – I just love the idea of, like, everyone at your office having the gamer chairs – and just, you know, when, when break time comes, like, everybody can just immediately get into a game of Call of Duty, like that episode of The Office. Yeah. Uh, I, I will admit, Josh, you know, we, we're, we're all lawyers around here, and on this show, we tend to lean more music law, although we, we certainly love film and TV as well. And that's why we love talking to you, because you can give us that film and TV perspective. And the timing that we have you on is huge, because film and TV law is a little busy at the moment. Uh, especially with the WGA strike that's going on right now and potentially SAG-AFTRA joining in this strike. It could be very disruptive on film and television and, and the shows and programs and movies that we all watch. Can you give us a little bit of uh, your assessment of where things are currently standing in the strike and how far apart the sides are? Yeah, yeah, Ryan. Things in Hollywood are looking pretty bleak at the moment, you know, Um the WGA, the AMPA have come to try to meet resolutions. Uh, the WGA had put their offer on the table. Um, and instead of counter-offering, the Producers Guild kind of just said, no deal. We're not accepting. Um, as far as I know, there have been no material talks or any advances forward yet. Um, it is uh, sort of, you know, it, it, encouraging that the DGA came to an agreement almost right away to avoid a strike. But all eyes are on SAG right now. I think we're, we're very much, you know, looking towards uh, June 30th as the date as the, the collective bargaining agreement for, for the Screen Actors Guild SAG-AFTRA is set to expire. Um, the, the, the actors have already authorized a strike. So, so preemptively speaking, you know, a lot of a lot of the productions that I've been working on have started to slow down. Things, phone calls have started to slow down. Uh, so, the, so the landscape or prospects of coming to a quick or, or speedy resolution aren't looking good. Um, you know, that being said. The last strike was 90 days, um, a significant amount of time, but, you know, it, it, 
we all eventually got back to work and everything eventually back got back to normal. So, so I am hopeful for a resolution towards, you know, probably the end of summer, early fall. What are the biggest sticking points right now? Is it money? Is it AI? So, so I think AI is an existential threat and I think it's a threat that the studios don't know how quite to address right now. And I think we all start kind of figuring it out. I think that that is a big sticking point, but I also think it is the money. Um, you know, in, 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 Six, seven years time, I, I started practicing in 2014, there was like 500 shows on television. Now there's upwards of a thousand new original programming on television per year. Those are a, a, a number of new writers that have gotten, you know, sort of jobs or staffed on shows. But, but the senior writers at top, there aren't 500 new showrunners for those 500 new shows. Um, senior writing staff has kind of stayed consistently the same. And the fact that you've had, you know, TV shows that are now, you know, not going past season one, not going past season two, instead of having 24 or 12 episodes, they're now going down to six or sometimes even four episodes. That all stifles a writer's career and stifles how much they can make on a, on a potential project. So, so it, it's kind of a little more granular than just what the money is, but, but how they're treated, how long they're employed, how long they have guaranteed work. And if that money is enough to stretch them from season to season, or if there is potentially, you know, just a one season show, is it enough money to stretch until they find that next show? Yeah. I can't help but notice that, you know, some, some similarities between this strike that's happening right now and the last WGA strike in 0708, which, gosh, wasn't that long ago. I can't believe we're back on this merry-go-round again. Like, we can't do labor disputes every 15 years. That stinks. But I think, you know, back in 2007, I remember that a big part of that strike was all about the rise of streaming video. And that yeah. was the new technology and internet and figuring out how we were going to cut the pie there. And now we have the new technology which is ai and we have to figure out how we're going to reconcile that in the industry so i would imagine that just like we're going to see this every time there's just a new piece of technology that has the potential to be disruptive in film and television i don't think ai is only going to be disruptive to film and tv i think we're going to see a lot of these strikes and movements across the board as ai starts to be more prolific. Um, the, the, the thing that really scares me about AI in terms of the, the writer's guild or how, as it relates to writers is it really does replace kind of, you know, the, the entry level writing position, sort of the staff writer and or sort of assistants within the writer's room itself, the people who would be going out and collecting research, um, you know, synthesizing information, taking people's writing samples and editing them and, and, and doing some of those more remote-ish tasks, those are really kind of, you know, the, the stepping stones in the writer's room in terms of leveling up from a staff writer to a story editor to an executive story editor, and then eventually making your way on to producer and, and so forth. So, you know, they, they are the writer's are very smart, very intelligent for getting out ahead of this AI thing, especially as it, it could potentially place a lot of those lower level jobs. I think we can all attest that the writing in Hollywood has been a little lackluster for a couple of years now. The last thing we need is, is something that's going to, you know, uh, disrupt the, the careers of future writers, uh, uh, writers in the future. Do you have any assessment, like any thought or like, have you heard like what the WGA is proposing 
with respect to AI? Like, what are they asking of the of the production companies with respect to AI? Just you're not allowed to use it. You're, you know, no logging on to chat GPT while, while we're in the room or have they, have they I, talked about specific that reforms that they want to see? I think that there are specific reforms and I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but some of them are at least the spirit of them that are, is that a writer can't be replaced by AI. And so that they wouldn't be purchasing or sort of using a screenplay based off of AI and then hiring a writer to then punch that up. Um, and then setting minimum number of writers within a writer's room that would then hopefully, you know, qualm the problem of, of needing AI. If you have, you know, minimum of six writers in the room, someone's got to be the person that collects research and kind of does some more of that, you know, quote unquote grunt work. Oh, Zach, have you seen any of the signs that the striking WGA writers have been like holding up? That That to me like has been. Like, obviously, it, it sucks that we're going through this labor dispute, but we're seeing some of the best writing in Hollywood just from these signs that the WGA yeah. writers are holding up. Like somebody I saw a sign uh, somebody put up that said uh, chat GPT doesn't have childhood trauma. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we are talking to some of the most creative people yeah. in America. Like it's like whenever you heckle a comedian, I go, that's never going to go well for you. They have a microphone and a sense of humor and they're going to crush you um, giving uh, putting news cameras on writers is going to create some hilarity. So I think this I, is why the DGA didn't strike. Honestly, they're like we can't compete. <laughs> we can't do <laughs> like, this. These guys are spitting fire right now. Like we, <laughs> like we'd hire writers to make our signs better, but we can't. They're on strike. They're gone. <laughs> um, no. yeah. So, so Joshua, I, I, yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead, Ryan. Go ahead. Sorry, You're I, good. Joshua. I'm very excited to talk to to you because I've. I've actually shout out your website's amazing. If you guys want to see how what a lawyer website should look look like, go to go to your um, go to your website. It's fantastic. But one of the things that I'm interested in as going through this is we're talking about these different le levels of writers and that eventually ascend to producers, right? And almost like how do these writers ultimately level up their career and what threat is being posed to them? Is there a threat that they can't level up their career anymore because of these things? Is that why they're striking? How does this happen? That's a very vague question. Yeah, no, no, no. It was a great question. Um, and to tell it requires a little bit of history. And, and thankfully, we're all old enough to remember, but maybe some of your audiences aren't old enough to remember. But remember television when it used to run in 24 episode sort of spans on, I mean, and they still do this to network television, right, to a certain degree, but who watches that anymore? Just just kidding. But, but, but really, though, the main, you know, sort of MO for a television series is that you had 12 to 14 episode front orders. They would run from, you know, late August, early September through end of Thanksgiving, right before the Christmas season, right? And then you have all the Christmas specials. Um, and then everyone would come back and there'd be another 12 to 14 episodes that would air from February through mid-March, April, May, so to speak, right? Almost ran the same seasons as, as school. Um, in a right and and those tv shows would go you know it, it, a good tv show would go three five six sometimes ten seasons and the writers who are engaged on season one they usually are engaged under option deals under those option agreements the studio has the right to call those writers back for additional seasons so 
in under the old old regime when you, again you had 24 episodes five six seasons per show a writer knew that they had a steady paying gig they, they could hopefully at least hope that that show is coming back and they have a steady gig from season to season and that those 24 episodes whether they're being paid on a weekly basis or paid on an episodic basis the money from those 24 episodes would be enough to last them either till the next season or if the show got canceled it would give them enough buffer to go out and find a new show that's under the old way of doing things now when shows are only one season you may hire a staff writer for that one show and it may be that one show that the writer ever works on. They may not be able to go out and do another show if they were hired to write for a very particular style of show and, you know, luck of the draw, they just can't move on. Or even if they can move on, they're not maybe necessarily moving on to a higher level position. They're not being sort of, sort of um, promoted. They're just being engaged at the same level. And so, so again, kind of under the old regime, under the old option agreements, it was at least assumed that if, if the studio brought you back for those additional seasons, you would be sort of elevated in your title. You, your, your, your deal would go from a staff writer in year one to a story editor in year two to an executive story editor in year three. Oh, Zach. Now, Josh? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Two. Now you got one season, you got one chance, you got one show, you got six episodes. A lot of times it's just the showrunner, like a, a David E. Kelly type that writes everything and you don't even need most of the other writers. So, so that is where it's sort of, sort of um, stifling or, or sort of capping sort of junior or, or baby writers. Oh, Zach, Joshua is making me miss 90s and earlier television i mean as a star trek fan in particular like i i mean we got like 200 episodes of star trek the next generation over seven seasons like now like star trek picard three seasons 10 episodes that was like one season of like what they used to do with star trek the next generation I mean, it was probably brutal on the actors like they got you know like it was way too they probably all got overworked and stuff but like, oh, God, I miss, like, you know, if you have a favorite show, you get to watch 150, 200 episodes of it, and they just don't do that anymore. Is is that a product of there being so many shows that... I mean, to me, this seems analogous to the record industry, right? Like, when you have a million bands, they're looking for the big hit, you know, and they're not going to roll the dice on multiple episodes unless something... or multiple seasons unless something just crushes. Like, unless you're Stranger Things, you're gone. Is that the environment we're living in right now yeah very much so and even if it does crush it you know there are other thoughts and other metrics if it does really well in the united states that's great but you know netflix has topped out its subscriber growth in the united states does it play well in brazil does it play well in india um because those are going to be ancillary revenue streams and or more subscriptions for the particular service so so yeah it is about them trying to find you know a the budgets have ballooned the budgets have skyrocketed and have gone up so much that they really kind of have to hit them out of the park um and they're trying you know to bring in a lot you know a lot of this too is is motion picture people coming over and doing television we now have tim burton you know doing tv right. um yeah 
that it's 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 a it's more competitive than it's ever been. Wow. It's a uh, it's it's definitely wild and I you know obviously we see the parallels or and and just sort of the cause and effect between these labor disputes and you know the way that these different stakeholder groups have to interact with each other and the difference it makes in terms of the tangible product that we all see in film and television like you can draw a line between these labor disputes and these and the labor relations and just the state of you know industry consolidation to why seasons are only eight to 13 episodes, why your favorite show is only on the air for two seasons. And maybe uh, I saw a commenter wrote this just now where like, you know, a show might get pulled after its second season, not because people don't love it, but just because the streaming service doesn't want to pay for that fourth and fifth season that are going to be more expensive because of the contract they negotiated or the union uh, provisions that are in there, or what we're seeing now with uh, was it HBO or Max or whatever they're calling it, where you're seeing the platform actually take old, like take catalog shows off of the streaming service, like shows that they the, the show's already done. They're not even making new episodes, but you can't even watch those old episodes because they're taking them off the service because they don't want to have to pay the the residuals and the royalties that would come to all those writers groups and everything else. Like, you know, I... I, I find a lot of that problematic and it does seem to get in the way of what could be a much more enjoyable film and TV experience for fans. Yeah. And I always say, you know, if you want to be the next Netflix, you want to, you want to beat Netflix, you want to beat Amazon, you want to beat Apple, the, 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 everyone's going to have their own silos of content. Everyone's going to have their own monopolies of IP. If you want to watch game of Thrones, you got to go to HBO, right? If you want to watch Marvel, you got to go to Disney. Not one of those, of those competitors is, is going to have a leg up really from one another. It's really about building a better mousetrap and getting consumers to have the best experience with your entertainment product. They're the ones that are going to eke out ahead. Without a doubt. So let's drift from uh, labor disputes and everything, because that's, you know, it's important, but I think it's making us all a little depressed. Um, I do want to talk to you about a, uh, a subject area that I know you love to talk about and I think is useful for our audience of independent creators to hear about. You, you've often led sessions on this idea of how to ask for more and not be a jerk about it. Yeah, I see Zach pointing like Zach, Zach Every uh, saw musician. this topic. Pay attention. Yeah, because indie creators and those who work with them, like we're often plagued with this reluctance to want to ask for more, to fight for every ounce of what we're worth. Like we just, we don't want to make waves. We don't want to bother people. We want to stay in the game and we don't want people to think, oh, this person's too much of a problem. Uh, we're just going to get rid of them and find somebody who's going to make fewer waves. But uh, you have, you speak a lot on this idea of how you can ask for more while still being somebody that people want to have in the room. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, you know, and, and I'll tell it by kind of giving you an anecdote. Um, one thing that I like to do every year is I pick a subject and I try to read as many books as I can about that one subject. And one year I sat down and I read, you know, 50 books about negotiation, persuasion, sales, and really, you know, getting your worth. And, and across every single book, it kept refer referencing this anecdote or this, this story, you know, it was a study I can't remember out of what journal or whatever, but you know, out of a thousand tries out of a thousand applicants, it, you're standing in front of a printer. If you ask the person 
in front of you, hey, can I budge you? 80% of the time, they'll just say yes. Again, in this you know antiquated study or whatever. If you have a good reason, that number jumps up to like 95% yes. And even if you have a bad reason, the, the likelihood of success is, is still pretty high. When I am negotiating things, when, when people leave things off the table, it's usually because they didn't ask. And it's that asking, it's, it's uncomfortable, but it's knowing your worth and knowing that you want to bring your best performance, your best self, your best work to the table, and knowing that the other side wants and or expects that of you too. So, so for both parties' sake, for both parties getting what they want, it's just better to be upfront. I talk about radical honesty. Talk about what it is that you're out, out for. What are you looking to get? What is your win? What is your end zone, your end zone dance? Because it may be completely different from that of the person you're negotiating across the table from. You're not adversaries. Most of the time when you're when you're working with somebody, you're collaborating with somebody, you're contracting with somebody, you have a long relationship ahead of you. The contract is is the beginning of the marriage. So so laying your cards out on the table, setting expectations, asking for what you want, not being a jerk about it, but the squeaky wheel really does get the grease. And then, you know, going out and, and again, trying to find advocates on your behalf, getting an agent or manager or an attorney, obviously not everyone is lucky enough to get those things, but, but truly, you know, I negotiate a lot with artists that are unrepresented and in, in the most dangerous thing is just not asking or not knowing to ask. So it sounds like a lot of what is, often left on the table is not for lack of what that person could get because, you know, in terms of what their leverage is or what their talents are, but just out of a reluctance to ask for it, or maybe just an ignorance of, of what to ask for, or just, you know, fear. But, you know, as your study noted, that fear is often unfounded. If you ask for more, if you ask for what you're worth, it's not going to torpedo the relationship most of the time. And as you noted, it might actually help the relationship going forward. If you're honest about what's going to make you happy in this relationship and you get that, you two are going to get along much better after the deal is done because now everybody's happier as opposed to feeling like it was a zero-sum game and, and you didn't do well in that negotiation and now you're stuck in a deal that you're unhappy in. The person on the other side of the table, in that sense, Joshua, seems to have an interest in giving you what you want, even if it's more because they'd rather work with somebody happy going forward. Yeah. You know, I, again, and I don't dabble enough in music, but I'll relate it to, you know, one of my actors, one of my actresses, um, you know, she, she's got allergies to peanuts and cashews and things of that nature. Um, you know, one of the first times we were negotiating the deals, she didn't tell me about this allergy months later. I find out that, you know, it wasn't accommodated for her on set and it was because she never told me and we never asked. Um, and you know, it, it didn't become something of an issue, but it could have been something where, you know, producer loses their lead talent for a couple of days of filming because no one alerted anyone about a peanut allergy. So it's not being difficult. It is standing up, knowing what you're worth, um, and articulating your wants and needs to the other, to the other side. 
I love that. Uh, we have a commenter who just wrote in pretty cool question here. How would you balance standing up to what you're worth versus respecting that the other person is asking for what they're worth? I, you know, this is probably a question you have to ask yourself in every ne- entertainment negotiation you've ever done. Yeah. I mean, every single time I get into a negotiation, I always try to think what is the other side after what is their end zone? And what is my end zone and how can we find a way that we can make both of our end zones, you know, just get to that 50, 50 line. Right. And, and there may not always be an answer that, that is intuitive. What some of my, my best deal making, you know, I just have a spark of inspiration on how do we, how do we King, I call it King Solomon. How do we King Solomon this baby? Um, and, 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 and it really is, you know, you, you got to do it respectfully. You got to do it professionally and you got to do it open and honestly. And, and you got to know that it's not personal and that it's literally just business. And it's, to, it's, it's a vehicle to get you from where you are, which is having an idea to create something, whether it's a song, a movie, blah, you know, blah, 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 to, to actually seeing that thing through fruition. You and, can find- you know, one of the things I always say is, again, if the, the contract is the beginning of the marriage. If you're too afraid to ask at the outset, if the, if the if the person on the other side is so scary or so much of a psycho that you can't even ask them for something up front, why the heck are you getting into bed with them anyway? Sometimes no deal is better than a bad deal. Wow, that is powerful. You can find out more about our guest work by visiting lastineentertainmentlaw.com. Our guest has been... Uh, inter- in the entertainment industry lawyer and professor Joshua Lasting. Uh, we always learn so much from having him on the show, and uh, we hope that there's a lot more of uh, of these appearances going forward because we really love chatting with you. Before we let you go, one last question, sir. Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Build your personal brand. In 2023, it's all about building your personal brand and subtleties out the door. When all eyes are on, you know, five billionaires in a scuba tank somewhere, you know, in the in the in the ocean, and we got thousands of layoffs and unionizations across Starbucks and the the um, postal service and stuff. It, subtlety is out the window in 2023. Build your personal brand. The squeaky wheel gets the grease um and and find your voice find your brand awesome joshua thank you so much for being on the show this week don't be a stranger okay we'd love to have you on again real soon thanks back i really appreciate it thanks man yeah we need to hear a lot more from joshua lasting and that sweet ass gamer chair of his uh he's welcome back here anytime man he's he's so sharp and i love his insight about negotiations and frankly as a as a deal-making lawyer in my own right He's exactly the kind of entertainment lawyer I like to negotiate with. The ones who understand that negotiation, especially in deals, is not a zero-sum game. It is something where we need to win together. Because, yeah, if you if you negotiate super hard and you squeeze the other side uh, every little bit, then you're going to wind up with a contract where that other side is really unhappy, and now you have a client who has to deal with a really unhappy person for a five-year deal. And that and that's bad lawyering. And so he understands that like a negotiation is is really just how much can we maximize both sides' value? 
How can we win together? And I've often heard some of the best nego- uh, entertainment negotiators will ask the other side right at the beginning, what do you want to accomplish out of this? What are your goals so that we make sure that the big things that you want, the non-negotiables, find their way into this deal so that you are happy and your client is happy so that our clients can be happy together? I love that. I think it's fantastic. And I think that's not only a good negotiating strat- strategy, but I think it's a good life strategy. And to tie it back to something we were talking about earlier, a great networking strategy as yeah. well. I think approaching networking as like, what can I get for myself? You know, how can I squeeze as much as I can out of this relationship so that it's benefiting me? That's not great for networking. Whereas if you see networking as how can we augment our value together? How can I create opportunities for this person? And oftentimes when it when when it comes to networking, and I know you can speak to this as well, Zach. The more that you create opportunities for others, the more that you help elevate others through your networking, 100% of the time, it always comes back for you. Absolutely. And there is also bonus to this. When somebody comes to you with an idea that you really are not excited about and don't want to work on, there is no better way to say, you know what? I'm not the guy for that this person is. And then now you don't have to deal with a project you don't want to work on and you've actually helped them get some help completing the project they want done. Everybody wins. I love that move. It's one of my favorite moves because you get out of a project you don't want to do and you look super magnanimous. Like, wow, this guy, super selfless. He just, he turned down a deal for somebody else. He was really looking out for me. Oh yeah, that's, that's, that is a first class networking move there, Zach Sloan. My thanks to you, Zach. Thanks to producer Lauren. Thanks to our guest, Joshua Lasting. Our guest next week is going to be musician and investor Gideon King. You're going to want to check that one out. That's going to be a heck of a show. We got some great shows coming up here through June and July. You're going to want to check them all out. Thank you all for checking out Break the Business this week. We'll see you next week.